morning. We get to be in God's Word today, and I stand before you the day after running my first 10K since I was in college. <laughs> and to be honest, I'm very bummed about the decaying body that I currently reside in, but I'm more excited today about the resurrection of Jesus than any other day because I know because He was resurrected, I'm with Him, and I get to be resurrected. Hallelujah. See, death does not have the final say, you hear me? Not because of morals or because of my religious activities, but because a man, God, came to earth and lived the life that I could not and do not live. And he went to death in my place. And on the third day, physically resurrected from the dead. Can you believe that? But why do you believe that? Today we're going to walk through why we would believe such a thing, and I want to remind you it's not because the Bible says so only, but because history and logic point towards the resurrection. While the Bible does the best job of describing why the resurrection happened, why it's so important, and we're grateful that you're here this morning, we're continuing this series, making the main thing the main thing. The purpose behind the series is to train us as a community to major in the majors rather than spend our time on religious expeditions that take away from the point of Christianity. I have this vision that for Church of the Valley, for COV, that we would be a church full of people that are either searching to know who God is, kicking the tires, asking questions, not afraid to go, hey, I don't understand that, would you teach me? but that we'd also be a community that is full of people that are increasingly wanting to know Jesus better. I wouldn't, that we would be a group of people that wouldn't come to church, to a church service that would come serve during the week. We wouldn't do it out of obligation, but we'd do it out of ex expectation to meet with Jesus. Expectance to worship corporately, to enjoy Jesus Christ together, to spur one another on, to encourage one another towards obedience, and to learn and grow together. One of the ways that that takes place is through consistency of language, de defining words that we talk about. That's one of the reasons we talk so much about the gospel, and we say things like, he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, he, or uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We, we use this language where we point it towards not us as the point, not us as the hero, but Jesus as the hero. And today, we're going to focus on the resurrection of Jesus, which at least for me, is what God used to hijack my eternity. First through my mind and then through my heart and my intellect. So here's a question that I want you to think about real quick. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? See, this was a question that I wrestled with before I knew the Lord, but I also would wrestle with this question with other believers because to be totally honest, most of the people that I talked to before I knew the Lord didn't really have an answer. Well, Jesus loves me. How do you know? For the Bible tells me so. It's a great song, but do you got anything more than that? And in my assumption, many of the people I came in contact with, they came in the name of the Lord. They followed blindly without any real explanation to what made them think that Jesus was truly God. This may be the excuse that some of us come in with today. And I want to affirm that it's okay to think that way. It's a really good excuse that I want us to help understand 
is really just that, though, an excuse. I want us to wrestle with this word, which is known as apologetics. Apologetics is a fancy word for an answer or a defense. So let's start out with some really simple common sense stuff that if you've heard me teach, you've heard me say this before. In order to give an answer, you first must be asked a? Oh, it's, yeah, good, it's not up there yet. Okay, good job, you guys are good. Much of evangelism has not been about presenting the message of the good news, that God came to seek and save those that were lost, but instead it's become an exercise in answering questions no one has asked. So instead of answering questions no one is asking, I want to spend time today walking us through the answer that helps answer every question we really do have. Why do we believe what we believe? Truly, it is the linchpin to Christianity. This is one of those sermons where you go, oh, I wish this person was with me today. Good news is we have a podcast. You can send it to them. But we are truly talking about the linchpin to Christianity. Let me put it this way. If the resurrection didn't happen, this is all worthless. In fact, Paul says that later on. We'll study that next week. And the point is that Christianity is based on King Jesus King. It's based on Jesus. It's based on the fact that God decided to bring, uh, take on human form to, to put on humanity and walk among us and do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And Christianity specifically is supported by history rather than wishful thinking. So we're going to dive deep. And by diving deep, here's what it's going to accomplish. It's going to actually make us have more questions to be totally honest. But we're gonna dive deep, we're gonna stir up these questions, and my hope for us today is that we would understand that the truth of the gospel is not understood because it's a religious message, but it's a factual invitation to know the living God. So turn with me, 1 Peter chapter three. We're gonna spend just a moment in verse, uh, chapter three, verse 15. Peter's speaking to the early church, and he says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In NIV 84, it says, but in your hearts, make Christ holy. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Oh, Peter, why'd you have to say that? Peter says to his listeners, set apart Christ. Make him holy. Don't make him one of many voices. Don't make him one of many podcasts. Make him the podcast. It's about what he says. Listen to what he says, what his voice says. Always be prepared, he says. I don't know if we understand what a big responsibility this is for Christians. We think, well, the pastor will talk to him. No. No, I am here to equip you to talk to the people you have a relationship with. So set apart Christ, make him holy, allow him to be the voice you listen to. Always be prepared. This is our responsibility. Not to have answers no one is asking, but to always be ready, to always be prepared, to always be on guard, to provide a defense for the question, why do you have hope? You know, a lot of questions that people ask you really are that question. They're just masked. So why do you go to church? I mean, you can kind of Jedi mind trick that and go, you want to know why I believe that Jesus is Lord. Got it. Hmm. See, knowing what someone believes is so important, but knowing why they believe what they believe, that's even more important. 
It truly is. To know why someone has gone through the things that they've gone through that has pointed them towards the belief that they have. And when we look through the apostles today and their lives and the change and transformation in their lives, you're going to start to see that God had to intervene for them to know the Lord the way they do. But do this, the text says. When you're having this conversation, when you're answering the question that people ask, do this with gentleness and respect. What are the two things we can't normally talk about with gentleness and respect? Politics. Did anyone's blood pressure just go up a little bit? And religion, faith, Christianity. I've had conversations with people that have been so good about faith, and then I've had conversations where I thought we were going to throw down. I'm just going to be honest about that. And what Peter says is do this with gentleness and respect. If you're here today and you do not believe in Christianity, in what the Bible teaches about God, and really you don't see the point, thank you for joining us. Your skepticism is warranted, and it's also respected, because I too felt the same way for much of my life. Why do I believe what I do? Here's the spoiler. You ready? I'm not going to ruin endgame. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spoil why I believe what I believe. It's because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and I'm sure of it. He's as alive today as he was on the third day when he came out of the tomb. So we're going to walk through how we know this to be true, and we're going to look at history, ironically, not just what the Bible says, even though the Bible confirms history and vice versa. So we're going to start in verse 1, which we've already studied. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, and we're going to read through a few verses. Now, brothers and sisters, now Christians, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you've received, which you've taken your stand, verse 2. By this gospel, this good news, you are saved, here's the important word, if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Otherwise, you believed in something you wanted rather than what the Bible says. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Oh, whatever he's about to say is pretty important. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So Paul is stating that this message is of first importance, one that should be passed on. That Christ died for our sins, and this was something that was not reactionary. God was not like, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? What can I do? I guess I'll send my son. No, this was foreseen. This was not a reaction. He knew this was going to happen, but it was foreseen specifically in the Old Testament hundreds of years prior to it actually taking place. Verse 4, I'll show you. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. After Jesus hung on the cross, his body was taken down from the cross, lifeless, and it was placed in a rich man's tomb. What was that rich man's name? Joseph of Arimathea. And we hear about this prophecy, ironically, in a passage that we studied a few months back in Isaiah chapter 53. And this is written 700 years prior to Jesus being born of Mary and walking the earth and physically dying on the cross. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 9. He, the suffering servant, was assigned a grave with the wicked, two thieves on the cross, and with the rich in his death. You don't really have to, like, squint to figure out what he's talking about. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So that's 700 years before, 
all right? Now we have this direct explanation of what happened to Jesus by the great Dr. Luke, who was considered one of the greatest historians of all time. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council. This is not a leadership council. This is the council for the Jewish people and and for the religious people that said how things were going to be. And he was a member of it and a good and upright man, verse 51, who had not consented to their decision and action when they had chosen to put Jesus to death. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. So he was a faithful man. He saw something in Jesus. He believed Jesus when he said that the kingdom was now at hand. Verse 52, going to Pilate, the ruler, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he, Joseph of Arimathea, took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in the tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. We understand that this was a tomb that Joseph had purchased for himself. He was a rich man, and so he prepaid, because he kind of knew he was going to die. And it's interesting fact that God used this member of the council who was a supporter of Jesus and cared so much for Jesus, knowing that this was going to be scandalous for him to ask for the body of this person who was killed for blasphemy. But he wanted to honor Jesus by placing him in the tomb that Joseph purchased for himself. An interesting thing about that fact is not only did Isaiah 53 speak of this 700 years before it happened, but today if you go to Jerusalem, here's the thing. No one's totally sure where Jesus got laid. Sorry, I said that wrong. How Jesus got put into a tomb. No one's totally sure where Jesus was put into a tomb. You know why? Because he was only there three days. He didn't last very long there. So you can go there, and some people will have little knickknacks and say, well, he got put here. And some will say, well, he got put here. But the truth is, he was not in there very long. 52 hours is what most people think. On a Friday, all of Saturday, and in the early morning of Sunday. But what we understand is this, that an empty grave literally proves nothing. Do you hear me? An empty grave by itself proves nothing. If you are buried and all of a sudden someone comes back to see you at your buried tomb and you're not there, the logical response is obviously not going to be, well, obviously they resurrected from the dead. That's not what any of us would think. And so there are these arguments like maybe the disciples stole the body but then died for it. That's a stupid argument. Well, maybe the the government took the body. Well, at some point they'd want to produce the body because everyone was saying that he rose. And so there is this understanding that we don't just say, well, it was an empty tomb, so we believe, because that's not the logical response. But we stand on the fact that our gospel is not built on wishful thinking, it's built on historical evidence. So not only did Jesus die for our sins, but the story didn't end there. Doesn't it feel like Easter? We're all going to be dressed nicer that day. But doesn't it feel like Easter? Our faith in Jesus Christ is not just in a cross, but it is in an empty tomb. One of my mentors once told me, don't leave Jesus in the grave when you preach the gospel, or I'll cut you. He's a big dude. And without the resurrection of Jesus, we are without hope. But through the resurrected Jesus, we have infinite hope in his future promises. 
based on his past performance, we can trust in his future promises, and we have hope in a living God. We have hope in salvation. We have hope in a future resurrection, and it is this verification that Jesus' death was not in vain, that you and I can live in confidence of our security in the kingdom of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. Listen, I personally put all of my eggs in this one Easter basket, pun intended, because the resurrection confirms that God not only has the power to forgive sin, but he has the power to give life where there's death. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see people interacting with Jesus, and as we've been studying that book, we notice that the people talking to Jesus are talking about the physical while Jesus is talking about the spiritual. So it's almost like a lot of the people he comes in contact with have two different conversations. Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus, Nick at night, as I like to call him. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he goes, obviously, you're from God. And Jesus just cuts to the chase and says, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And he's like, surely I can't enter into my mother's womb again. It's kind of weird. But the thing is that Nicodemus was thinking physical, and Jesus was speaking of the spiritual. And he tells people throughout the Gospels that they are dead. And they're like, we're not dead. We have breath. I feel the pinch. We are not dead. But yet he's talking about spiritually. Because they are decaying, but spiritually he's telling them they must be born again through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. If Jesus can lay down his life and then pick it back up, I'm with him. Anyone want to get dead? No. And yet God says, if you're with me, you have eternal life. You know how long eternity is? Exactly. You have eternal life. See, there isn't a person that you or I know, have met, have talked to in history that doesn't have an expiration date on their physical body, which is decaying, and I know this after running a 10K yesterday. There's not a person you've met that doesn't need the Spirit of God to bring them to life, to eternal life, through a resurrected Jesus. But again, an empty tomb by itself proves nothing. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. You guys are Bible scholars. And then to the 12. So an empty tomb proves nothing. There are plenty of logical conclusions that may, what could have happened to Jesus' body, but the evidence isn't just an empty tomb. You guys hear me? But an empty tomb plus many eyewitness reports of seeing the formerly deceased person walking around, now that starts to build a case. See, Paul records that Jesus appeared to Peter, Cephas. Peter was the spokesperson of the disciples. You guys ever notice that like in the New Testament, there are these places where Peter in particular not only stuck his foot in his mouth, but Peter did something to Jesus three times. What was it? Denied him. Dude, if I'm writing a gospel, I am not putting that in there because that makes Peter look terrible. And Peter's supposed to be the spokesperson for the early church. Here's the thing. Why would that be recorded that he denied Jesus three times? Because it happened. And so they were going to say exactly what happened. Peter later goes on to be martyred for his faith. How? Hung upside down on a cross. Some of you guys know that? Okay, 
You don't know that because the Bible says it. You know that because history says that. That is a tradition of, the, of Roman history that Peter did not hang on a cross upside right. He went upside down because he told those that were going to put him to the cross, on the cross, I do not deserve to be hung upside, uh, upside like my Savior, so I want to be upside down, which was significantly more painful. Then he appears to the twelve. Now, technically, this would be known as the 11, because Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus and ended his own life. But the chosen apostles, the sent ones, had been known as the 12, so the name had continued. It was a figure of speech. What we see from the apostles is an unwillingness to serve from their belief that Jesus, in their minds and understanding, without question, physically rose from the dead. So why do I know that they believe this? Why do I know that the disciples believed without question that Christ had risen from the dead? Because of the stakes in which each and every disciple had to deal with for that message. All of the disciples were persecuted for their belief that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead because they would not stop proclaiming that it had happened. See, we know that James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod because of his faith. That's in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. But all the other disciples, we don't see it. We actually have to look to Roman history. And based on tradition, we hear that Paul was beheaded by the emperor Nero in 66 AD, and that was also the same year Peter was crucified upside down. So I'm wondering if Satan thought he was winning that year. Let's see. Andrew was crucified in Greece for his faith. Thomas was martyred in India while preaching the gospel by four soldiers who pierced him with spears. Philip, let, Philip the evangelist, led an official in the Roman government's wife to the Lord, and the Roman official didn't like it, so he had Philip killed. Wow. Tradition says that Matthew, we know him as Levi also, and he wrote the book of Matthew, was stabbed to death in Ethiopia while proclaiming the gospel. Bartholomew, eat my shorts, was martyred while in southern Arabia. James, son of Alphaeus, was spoken about by the historian Josephus, who is considered by many the greatest historian in some places, who claimed that James was stoned to death in Syria. Simon the Zealot was ministering in Persia, where he was executed for being unwilling to bow down to the sun god. Matthias was sent to Syria with Andrew and was burned alive for this message that Jesus rose from the dead. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's the only one that had a different fate, except he ended up in the same spot. See, John was, the government tried to bathe John alive in boiling oil, and tradition says that, that it unaffected him, which led him to be exiled to Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. These are the disciples. These are the ones who walked with Jesus, followed Jesus, and after his death, you know what they did? They went back to work. They were freaked out. Oh my gosh, maybe this was a bad idea. We were following Jesus and now he's dead. And they went back to work because they had to support themselves. And yet eventually all of this took place because they went from doubters to bold proclaimers, not because a tomb was found empty or because someone else had convinced these men, but because they physically saw Jesus alive and they talked with him and they ate with him. 
So I need a volunteer. Who do we got? Who wants to be a volunteer? Malik, come on up, buddy. It's so funny, like, young men are like, eh, and then the older guys and women are like, no, no, you're going to put me on the spot. <laughs> hey, buddy, Hi. this is Malik. A lot of you guys know Malik. He's, he's awesome in Jesus. Um, Malik, what are you going to do this summer? Okay. Okay, you're going to hang out with your brother. So let's imagine you and I are at Pete's because it's holier than Starbucks. Right, Gabe? Yes, yes? Okay. And, and we're at Pete's, and we're sitting at that bar because there's, my table isn't available, and there are no other seats. And so we sit, at that, we sit at that bar, and we're looking out the window, and out the window, there's a parking lot. And you and I are talking as we're having a conversation about your summer, and you're telling me about what you're going to be doing with your brother. We're having this conversation. All of a sudden, a motorcycle pulls up. And the motorcycle pulls up, and it's not like a hog. It's a wah-wah. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like GSXR 750. Had one once. Yeah, love those. And so it pulls up, and, and there's a guy on it. And the guy gets off of the bike, and he probably goes into Panera, because wherever there's a Pete's, there's a Panera, right, for the fear of the Lord. Anyway, and so, so he gets up and goes to Panera, and you and I are talking about what you're going to do this summer. You're talking about your brother. You're telling me about skateboarding and all this other stuff. And as we're having the conversation, in the middle of the conversation, we look at the corner of our eye and we see the motorcycle is starting to move with no one on it and starting to swing back and forth. Can you imagine this? And while it's doing this, <laughs> while it's doing this, all of a sudden it does the transformer thing. And you and I are talking about your summer, but we notice this, we see him, and all of a sudden he waves at us and runs away. Are we going to go back to talking about our summer? No, we're going to grab our phones, we're going to try to take a picture of it, we're going to get super excited, we're going to try to record it. All of a sudden, people are going to come to us and go, what's the commotion? We're going to say, we're talking about Malik's brother during the summer, they're going to be hanging out, playing skateboarding, and all this other stuff. And all of a sudden, the motorcycle did, 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 got up and waved at us and ran away. And people are going to think we're crazy. And then the police are going to be called. And the police are going to come down. They're going to start talking with us. And they're going to say, what happened? Well, we were in Pete's and all of a sudden, we were talking about his brother and then the motorcycle did, 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 waved at us ran away. <sighs> And the police officers are probably going to think we're a little bit nuts. And then they're going to tell us to stop causing a commotion, stop telling people of what we just saw. Here's my question for you. Are we going to stop telling people what we just witnessed? No! We're going to go on Oprah, right? Like, we're going to be telling everybody, listen, we were having a conversation about the summer, and all of a sudden, motorcycle, da da da, da. Why? Because what we believe to be true, that motorcycles stay motorcycles, and Michael Bay movies are just that, movies, they're not reality, all of a sudden, everything we believe's changed because this motorcycle has turned into a transformer, waved at us, and ran away, and we will not keep it to ourselves. Good job, Malik. Way to go. <laughs> and like that transformer analogy, the disciples could not keep to themselves what they had experienced. The responses of the disciples are vital to the testimony of the resurrection. I didn't say their testimony is by itself. It is their responses, not just their words, but their physical responses to what they had seen. See, in other religions, you have people that claim that something took place until their lives are threatened, and then they tend to recant. Or, or those who were willing to give up their lives for their belief of possibly Allah in, in, in the Muslim faith, or a higher power, when they proclaim that they believe that something was true, they are willing to give up their lives, but only because someone else convinced them. But only in Christianity 
Do you have such a large portion of people convinced that a supernatural event took place and they were willing to give up their own lives for such a message, hear me, based on firsthand information rather than someone else telling them that it was true? I remember the first time I was ever going to speak at a church. It was back in 2001. I'd been a Christian for like 12 seconds. And I was asked to share my testimony in front of a few hundred people. And I remember getting ready for church that morning, and I started to have some of the most paralyzing doubt I've ever had in my entire life. You ever been there? I started to wonder if Jesus was truly the only way. What if Christianity is just wishful thinking? What if I'm wrong about all of this? Am I going to stand before 300 people and tell them that I believe something's true? What about this doubt that I'm having? And yet, in that moment, I believe by God's grace alone, my mind went to the disciples who were willing to give up their entire lives, both relationally. See, they lost their status in their families. They were disowned by family members because of how scandalous the message of the gospel was. They were also threatened. They were also beaten and eventually put to death because they would not recant from this message that was offensive to those who did not understand it. But the firsthand information, I think, is way more important than most of us grasp. We think, well, there have been other people in other religions who were willing to give up their lives for the sake of their message. Sure, there have been. But never were there individuals who could have known if their faith was actually true or not. Because these disciples physically saw Jesus. Listen, September 11th, 2001. We all know what happened that day. We had the largest terrorist attack on American soil ever in history. On the 11th of September, a few radical and ill-informed Islamic terrorists acted out a plan to take over four different commercial airliners and hijacked and attempted to crash these planes. Two into the Twin Towers of New York City, which unfortunately they were successful in. One flew into the Pentagon and killed many. And one crash landed in Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh after passengers on the flight found, fought off the hijackers from possibly attempting to crash the plane into some other national landmark. Here's what I know about these hijackers. They were sincerely convinced that by the, they were definitely sure of what they believed. They were convinced that it was true by their willingness to give up their own lives for the cause of a cultish and misinterpreted version of Islam. They thought that they would inherit paradise by giving up their own lives and killing enemies of what they thought was of God. I know they believe this. I know that they were sincere because they were willing to give up their own lives. But even though they were sincere, I also believe they were sincerely wrong. They didn't know this from firsthand information. They were not there when Allah supposedly inspired Muhammad to produce the Quran. They believed this because someone else had handed down this belief to them and unfortunately convinced them to give up their lives. Unlike those hijackers, the disciples didn't attempt to hurt anyone to gain their God's affection. 
They obeyed what Jesus had taught and understood that if Jesus actually rose from the dead physically, forgiveness was available to those who would repent and follow Jesus. And so these disciples were unwilling to choose their own comfort or their self-preservation over the magnitude and need that the world had for the message of the gospel. We don't realize how important history is. I was being interviewed by a, at the paper at Cal State Berkeley, and one of the things they asked me, this was years ago, they asked me what I was about, like, what, what's my mission? And Berkeley was all about raising awareness, right? And I said, my mission is to raise awareness that Jesus is alive. And I think we make the Christian faith, I think we make the whole Christian idea, we, we don't realize that what we're communicating to people is not about a living God that you can have a personal relationship with. You know what we communicate? We communicate that you gotta clean yourself up. We communicate that you gotta be a better version of you. Jesus did not live, die, and rise again so you could clean yourself up. He did that so we could have life and life eternal that only comes from receiving this message that he's good enough and we're not. Oh, thanks, John. And like the transformer analogy, we can, wait, 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 look at me, look at me, look at me. We cannot keep this to ourselves. Sorry, that's my dad voice. We cannot keep this to ourselves. If this is true, if Jesus is alive, we cannot keep this to ourselves. All right, verse six. <laughs> Paul says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That means when he was writing this, a lot of people were alive, so he's like, go ask Ted. Bill and Ted know. I don't know why I use Bill and Ted. <laughs> and, and yet he says, some have died. So after appearing to the disciples, he appeared to more than 500 people all at once. Okay, that's kind of a big deal. Listen, some people argue that Christianity is based on wishful thinking. Maybe it was just groupthink. Maybe this large group of people were convinced by one person that they said something and then everyone else started to believe the same thing just based on the testimony of one. But I know for a fact that when people are threatened, especially with their own lives, they gotta be sure of something. They have to be sure that they saw it. They, if they're gonna be threatened to lose their incomes, they're gonna be threatened to have their families taken away, they will most naturally recant unless they're sure. So the groupthink idea doesn't hold the water because these are also not people that were all in the same place at the same time. There were many groups of people over 40 days that all said that they saw Jesus alive after he died. So some people wanna argue that maybe it was a hallucination. The people in their grief, because they lost sleep over the fact that Jesus from Nazareth had been put on a cross, and they thought he was a great guy, and they could not believe that he died, and so they had a bunch of sleepless nights, and they had so much sorrow that people started to hallucinate a resurrected Jesus. See, hallucinations are like dreams. They come from our subconscious, and they cannot be transferred just so you guys know, I cannot be dreaming about Disney World and enjoying it and having this absolutely un, uh, this perfect weather in Florida because it happens once a year. And, and I cannot be dreaming about being there, wake up, tap my wife on her shoulder, go, babe, jump in my dream, free vacation. It does not work like that. 
And if 500 people can testify, and other groups of people can testify to seeing the same thing that is not groupthink or hallucination, that is an event. And so you have the testimony of hundreds of people that saw the same thing. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Real quick, who's James in relationship to Jesus? Half-brother. Same mom, different dad. You guys get that, right? And he appeared to James, the half-brother of Jesus, one of the many family members that, according to the Bible, did not believe that Jesus was actually God. They did not believe that he is what the Old Testament talked about, that he was the coming Messiah, the suffering servant. But we see James, as the early church starts to take off, he's the head elder. He's the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, proclaiming that Jesus is God, proclaiming that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is James's half-brother. You guys have heard me say this. How many of you have siblings? How hard would it be for your sibling to convince you that they were God? It's impossible unless they physically rose from the dead. I don't know if there's a more important apologetic than James becoming a follower of Jesus. Believing that Jesus, the only son of God, who is also James's brother, believing this blows my mind. See, James saw Jesus alive after he died, and he changed his mind completely to the point of James worshiping Jesus as God. This wasn't just intellectual. This was, and he falls on his face and he gives his life to God through his own brother. I'd like us for a moment just to think about what a big deal this is. This is someone that grew up with Jesus. Like, what I'm not saying is every time they played catch, Jesus, perfect spiral. That's not what I'm talking about. They didn't see anything bad with Jesus, but the fact is that they were numb to the idea of God being a human, especially a sibling of someone who was related to you. In the beginning of James's letter to the church, he has this salutation. Here's what it says, James chapter 1, verse 1. James, he writes this, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the nicest thing you've ever called your sibling? To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. See, I think it's hard enough to get a sibling to say mercy if you're wrestling, let alone call them Lord. And James serves the Lord as a leader of the early church in Jerusalem, and eventually around 62 AD was stoned as a martyr for his faith and his unwillingness to recant his belief that his own brother was Lord and Master. If only we really thought about the significance of this truth. Maybe, just maybe, we wouldn't scoff at the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Or maybe we'd understand that there's history on our side to believe what we believe. See, I came from the other side. I used all the arguments, and the reason I stand before you today is completely a gift from God, but the reason that I know my Lord intellectually before the veil being removed or even being willing to listen to who he was was because there was no good argument against the resurrection. Like, I'm just throwing that out there. I've listened to the other guys. I've read their books while wanting to agree with them, and the arguments did not stand up. I'm going to skip to verse 8. And last of all, Paul says, and he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. 
Paul is explaining that he is not like the rest. He was an enemy against what was the original name of Christianity was called the way. He was an enemy against the way. He was an enemy against the movement of Jesus' followers. But after Paul had supposedly seen, to, seen, talked to, and met with Jesus on the road to Damascus, after he had risen from the dead, everything changed. So much so that Paul started to proclaim that Jesus was Lord, started to proclaim and wrote much of the New Testament. So hear me, if James the apostle who was Jesus, or James the half-brother of Jesus isn't enough for you to be convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, then Paul has to make you doubt your belief that resurrections don't happen. So Paul the apostle, the one who was killing Christians and then switched teams. James, the half-brother of Jesus, worshiped Jesus as God after he believes he saw him alive. An empty tomb and the martyrdom of all the disciples. Man, that's a pretty good argument for the idea that we believe that this apologetic, that Jesus rose from the dead, is true. See, apologetics exist to remove excuses and expose the rebellious heart. It's one of my favorite quotes about this, and I was trying to figure out who wrote it, and I Googled it. Turns out I wrote it, <laughs> uh, or I use it a lot. I don't think I wrote it. Paul was so against Christianity that at the beginning, he led the charge to have these people that were proclaiming Jesus as Lord killed. Later on, after Paul had traveled, he had proclaimed the good news to many of the Gentiles all over Asia Minor, and we see him then arrested and brought before the government. Paul was brought before Festus, if you're looking to name your child, a governor and ruler who Paul had come to defend himself against because there were these charges that he was making a disturbance against the force. Sorry, no, not the force, the government. Verse 25, sorry, chapter 25, verse 8 of Acts, we see Paul going through all this. He's brought before Festus, and it says this, Paul made his defense, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Paul says that the law is something he kept. We know that no one can keep the law perfectly but Jesus Christ. And the law was given so that we would know that we can not keep it. Thus we need a savior, thus we need a Lord, and we need a high priest to stand in the gap for us. See, religion always puffs up. Did you guys know that? It always puffs up those who think they can keep the law. It produces this holier-than-thou eternal perspective. Well, I earned it. And sometimes, if religion is our goal, then we feel guilty because we have this realization that we're not good enough. In contrast, relationship with Jesus, not religion, but relationship with Jesus means we submit to the fact that we are not good enough, but we praise and follow the one who is. At the heart of Christianity, it's not about you. At the heart of Christianity, it's about Jesus. It's about a resurrected Jesus who cemented and verified that he is who he says that he is. And if Jesus is who he says that he is, we can be who he says we are, which is forgiven. Verse 9, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. <sighs> Real talk. I am so glad our salvation is not based on us. Aren't you? 
Paul explains that he knows that it's God who provides his justification. It's God who provides his role in the kingdom as an apostle, as a sent one. And it is this supernatural realization. This is what I'm ending with. I got so much more, but basically I wrote my sermon for next week. It's this supernatural realization that we must all understand. And I'll be honest, I don't think we can understand what I'm about to say unless the Holy Spirit makes it so we can, unless God intervenes. Here it is. We cannot earn a gift. That's it. See, we have a relationship with God because God chose to give us grace. He gave us what we did not deserve. We don't deserve Jesus. We don't deserve history on our side. We don't deserve a lot of things, and yet God decided to give it to us through his goodness, not ours. We brought nothing to the table, and so we cannot earn a gift because it ceases to be a gift if we think we have somehow attained it through our merit. So worship team, why don't you come on up? I have so much more that I want to say. But I want you to rest in the fact that we have a relationship with the Lord, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has accomplished and the fact that he's given us grace to know him.